Hi, I'm David Kyes, and I run R for the Rest of Us. You may think of R as a tool for complex statistical analysis, but it's much more than that. From data visualization to efficient reporting to improving your workflow, R can do it all. On this podcast, I talk with people about how they use R in unique and creative ways. Join me and learn how R can help you. Well, I am joined today by Chris Knox. Chris is head of data journalism at the New Zealand Herald. Prior to that, he worked at the New Zealand Ministry of Health, where he led an analytics team focused on that country's COVID response. Chris, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, happy to be here. Great. Um, well, let's talk a bit um, about, we've talked previously, but um, you know, I'd like to have you kind of give a, a overview for folks who are listening to this. You have told me that R was really instrumental in helping to stand up the the COVID response of the government of New Zealand um, to help that to help stand that up really quickly. Can you kind of talk and give an overview of of what the role R played was in in the initial COVID response? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just so I just for a little bit of background, I joined the New Zealand COVID response uh, in uh, January 2021. So it had already been going for a while by then. Um, so I was was working at in a, in a different role at the Herald, uh, and then moved over to to help out with COVID response. Uh, now I've moved back. Um, but so when um, it, so yeah, so the the very early stages I, I'm talking I, I'm talking about based on my what I observed rather than actually being there. Sure. Um, but um, so yeah, so when I arrived in January, the entire way that we did all all of our reporting was basically based on a big set of r code uh and and that was stood up uh so obviously at the you know march 2020 when new zealand went into to its first lockdown uh we we didn't have anything in place uh for for covid reporting uh or anything like that uh and um I think that, like a lot of countries, our general infectious disease reporting was not designed to be kind of day to day. So the real, you know, the, I mean, there were there were systems in place for reporting notifiable diseases, but you know, at the end of the year, after everything had been tidied up and 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 the big right. kind of change that that COVID reporting brought into kind of the health system was the need to report on kind of inc- or essentially incomplete data. Um, so under under a under sort of normal health reporting circumstances, you wouldn't talk about something where, you know, potentially the person you're talking about hasn't even been notified that they've got COVID yet. Um, right. Because you, you're basically, you're reporting about positive tests that have come through the lab. Um, certainly you're reporting on things before case interviews have been completed or anything like that. Um, so just maybe for a little bit of background, New Zealand's COVID response was, um, we were, we were very lucky to have a bit of a, a slow start. We saw what happened with COVID around the rest of the world. Uh, and, and when, um, it, it eventually arrived in New Zealand, we went into a very strict lockdown, uh, and eliminated COVID. So that we had quite a long time when, where there was no COVID transmitting in, in the community, uh, and so when there were cases where they were hand, they were 
went through detailed case interviews and, and contact tracing. Uh, and we actually, we had a number of community outbreaks in 2020 and 2021, which were largely, the, um, Delta was the last one. And that was almost eliminated before Omicron arrived. And then that was the end of um, that type of response. And so we, we moved into a situation more like the rest of the world with, you know, thousands of cases a day. Um, sure. So it, when, when that happened, there, there, you know, so most, just, yeah, most countries didn't have this kind of detailed case interview going on <laughs> for most of yeah. 2020 and 2021. Uh, and so we were recording from, basically information coming in from labs and from case interviews uh, and the nature of what was being collected was changing all the time uh, as as COVID changed. And so uh, the information that was being collected was being loaded into databases, uh, but the way that basically the way that we were having to report things each day, or, or it, at some points it was essentially the reporting, reporting requirements changed every day. <laughs> Uh, and oh. so we were producing daily reports uh, in the morning for, for ministers uh, and then um, the daily announcement went out to the public at 1pm every day. And so that, there was a, huge, a big set of R analysis sitting behind that code and uh, behind those announcements. Uh, and, and it was essentially the fact that we were able to, to reproduce run that uh, workflow reproducibly, but also keep changing it is what uh, enabled us to do that. So, um, and, and obviously as, as things settled down, any particular type of um, information that was being collected as it settled down, there would, or it would be, some things were being captured in the operational databases and then moved into reporting databases. Uh, some things were being captured via phone calls and written down on spreadsheets uh, and so we were constantly dealing uh, and very early on i understand that there were actually test um test results being faxed from one of the dhbs oh. um oh. so th there was you know there was a bit of technical um sort of technological um catch up that needed to be done in some places um so dhb is, is district health board in new zealand so it's gotcha. the way that our health system was managed um and so, um, yeah, we it, it basically, it, I guess the, the summary is, 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 yeah, lots of constantly changing sources of data, um, sure. but the need to consistently report on kind of changing parameters. <laughs> and yeah. so I think something like, a, 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 um, I can't see sort of any workflow other than something like a, a, a basically an R pipeline to, to do to actually make that work where you've got the ability to 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 reproducibly run most of what you're doing and then put yeah. the effort into changing the things that need to be changed um, and can i ask you more about then, that you said you can't imagine another workflow other than what you had with r why is that like what what would be the issue with a um, different type of workflow i mean i guess so i guess the other types of work you know some of these types of systems work on um yeah, a more, more classic BI type system where you have everything going into a database and then something like Click or Tableau um, building a dashboard that uh, sits on top of that. And my experience is, is that those types of systems, um, I mean, I think so building something like a dashboard to do this, it, it inevitably results in kind of 
a big development requirement whereby um, changes in the back end require quite a lot of things to change in the front end. And so you got this, so it becomes quite difficult, I think, to keep um, like the, you know, the day, the schemas at the back end are changing all the time, you know, so it's quite a lot of effort to keep a dashboard or something like that up to date. Um, I think anything that the big advantage of a, of a, of a R or a, or a um, sort of a text-based um, workflow is, is that everything's written down and you just run, you know, you, you run those functions, things happen. And so whereas if, if I mean, if, if, you, if it was a more kind of point and clicky type of analytics workflow, the amount, the, the, the amount that we would have, because the other thing is, is this is running seven days a week with constantly changing team members, um, we were burning people out reasonably quickly. Um, and so <laughs> there was, you know, there, there was, there was turnover quite a bit, particularly, um, at kind of at key moments. And, and so having someone come in who had understanding of R and basically, you, just, you know, you could sit down and run, run that, make sure there's no errors, um, you know, people can pick that up really quickly. Whereas if you were having to train people to go through like a, an actual kind of point and click based workflow, um, it would have been a lot harder. So I think that kind of that the, the most things written down in code and being run reproducibly with, with small changes where needed uh, and lots of error checks, um, is, is what I mean by the work. Yeah. I think that that just gave us that flexibility, um, Gotcha. And then over over time, we add we added um, it, the whole workflow moved into Git, so we had a, a GitLab instance, um, so everything was checked in, so which actually meant that we could um, we actually kept the code each day's code was kept, so you could go back, you know, and be like, oh, what what what, did, what, what analysis did we actually run, you know, on the second mm-hmm. of July or whatever, which was quite useful. Um, and again, trying to trying to capture what you did in a point and click type analysis environment, I don't think is possible right. uh, in, in the same way. Uh, and then also we introduced um, targets, which is a, a library that um, is, is part of the R OpenSci ecosystem. Uh, and it, 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 that was fantastic. <laughs> um, so that made a huge difference. They revolutionised the way we were doing things, uh, yeah. mostly in in that that the it, um, it allowed us to. So the previous way that things had been set up, which you know was um, worked extremely well, but became quite time consuming. We're basically sort of be a standard. We've got a, a central R script that calls a bunch of other R scripts um, one after the other, uh, and that worked well. But when the data got large, got pretty slow. Uh, and and the problem was if something went wrong at the end, you'd have to fix it and then rerun the whole thing. And run so the whole we thing, got into yeah. some, there were some days when the one PM update didn't happen at one PM. Gotcha. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and that's not ideal. Uh, and so um, to kind of to spit what the a targets workflow does is is it basically allows you to define kind of little steps of your workflow and if the input data and in the code doesn't change then it won't rerun that bit of caches what you've done it so then the initial load of data could be cached and then we could look at kind of the, the edge cases and 
and handle those gotcha. without having to rerun the entire workflow. Um, can you can you give me an overall sense, uh, you know, at a very high level of kind of what were the steps that your code was doing? Um, you know, I imagine it was grabbing data from a database, maybe doing some analysis. But I'd love to have you just kind of again at a very high level walk me through what it what were the major steps. Steps, yeah. So kind of at, at the highest level, we had a database of cases. Uh, and then the first thing we had, the code had to do was work out whether or not we'd reported a case previously. Uh, and so there was a bit of sort of work around, and um, particularly once things got busy, people landed up being recorded in case databases more than once. So we were deduplicating. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that, and then the next step, there's a... Um, the kind of the key step for for most of um, most of the time was identifying whether or not cases were border cases or community cases, mm. uh, and so we had um, usually that would be recorded uh, as part of the case entry, but we generally want to validate that as well, and so we'd uh, look at um, we'd have data uh, on flight records uh, and. Um, and also, we were, so from a lot of the time, uh, international arrivals went into managed isolation, uh, and so we'd we'd want if a case was identified, we'd want to uh, check and see that um, what facility they were in, whether there'd been other cases reported in that facility. Um, check and see, you know, like if a case was, um, so we'd want we'd report on how many cases that arrived at the border that were detected, sort of on the first day, because essentially we. Weren't, weren't concerned. We expect cases right. to arrive at the border and be de- detected sure. on the first day. Um, but if a case is being detected on sort of day seven or eight, uh, then we we would flag that to to up to people that would then go and investigate. Um, and so, sort of, basically, it's that. I guess it's a yeah. So it's merging up all of those databases to then summarize it. Um, so it's like you know there were this many cases today and we don't need to worry about any of them kind of with sort of one level of messaging um, or, right. or it'd be like, here are t- two cases of concern go and, and then people would go and check those out and then information would come back from that and then we'd be like, yesterday there were two cases of concern but they're not actually of concern because they were yeah. that sort of thing. So, Okay, and, and you talked, so you talked about, you know, the first step being kind of some deduplication and then the piece you were just talking about trying to figure out if it was a community spread or, or a case from from outside of New Zealand the border cases um, yep. after you did that kind of analysis <coughs> what did the reporting look like like how did you do reporting I mean I know you said there was a 1 p.m um, yes right thing that went so out. The first what is yeah what did that look like so the first so our reporting was um, Ironically, I joined so as because I was come from a data journalism background. Um, a, a lot of my previous work had sort of been in fancy interactives and, and that sort of. And so, um, but actually, I ended up the primary output of of our R code was Word documents. Uh, so, used a lot of R markdown um, to to generate. Uh, and so, basically, the the primary kind of re- reporting was um, well, actually, so. At 9 a.m., we would the first piece of reporting was actually a text uh, that was sent to to kind of high level ministers uh, and a few and um, a, a relatively small distribution saying this is how many cases are going to be reported in New Zealand today and, and this is where they're from. Uh, 
Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. How did how did it get from R to sending a text? What, what was text. that process? So that that was unfortunate. It was a signal text, and that was a, that was a, the most manual part of the job that okay. the, the analyst running had to do it. So we basically run everything, get a summary, and be like, okay, we're going to send a text. I see. Um, okay, so that, that was go out. That was manual. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it might have been nice to connect R up to Signal, but we never kind of quite had the right bits and okay. pieces to do, to do that. But yes, that was manual. Uh, and then um, then there was a situation report that was sent each day at 11, uh, and that um, that was a, ultimately a PDF, but uh, started off as a Word document, um, and we would generate a whole bunch of charts and tables that went into that and the key kind of a lot of work went into ensuring consistency across all of those reporting which got was rel was tricky because data would change <laughs> status of cases and things change between 9 a.m and 11 a.m uh, oh. so, <laughs> um so but a lot so most we we cut off the data at 9 a.m but then so, so most of it would stay fixed, but some of it would would change. You would have to take that into account. And then the one pm, uh, basically there was a media statement that we'd provide, which was sort of pretty pretty standard format, which we'd provide input into in terms of all that, which was a high level summary of the numbers that was drawn from that situ- 11, 11 a.m. situation report. And then and also at that point, there was a there's a website that we update. Um, okay. at 1 p.m. Well, and both updated. Am I correct that the 11 a.m. and the 1 p.m. summaries were those Word documents that you knitted from our markdown or was, was it some other format? Uh, no, they, they were. So what, what, what actually, the way that it, so there was then 11 a.m. one um, had input from other sources as well as just what came out of our kind of analytics uh, pipeline. So the way that we would do it is we'd actually, we'd have a kind of a, a data sit, sit rep, which we would knit. And then if, if there were issues or things needed to be changed, we'd knit it again. Um, okay. And then um, and then the, the final compilation of that report was a manual step of actually picking up the latest versions of the charts and copying them into the another report um, but okay. and tables. But basically what we had, we had everything set up so that, that the output and and the automatically produced word document was essentially identical to what was in the manually produced one um so it was just a really straightforward operation for people to pull it over um but we didn't we we didn't go as far as getting non-programmers to try and write into a markdown type environment um that's that was sort of a step too far so uh there were other other things that we produced that were fully sort of markdown based um, kind of on a less um, frequent basis, but those, that one in particular, there was always yeah. kind of narrative um, commentary that went with it, and there were other people sure. writing that. So, okay, um, and yeah, and then the the one BM was more of a web update. Um, so then okay. that was based on um, we basically had a set of of um, template web table templates, and we'd update those templates based using R. So okay. the, kind of the final output of one of the, so the final output of that daily work pipeline was a bunch of HTML, which we'd then send off to the web team. And they would 
they copy it Update. into yeah yeah into the yeah. okay and so so all the steps if i understand correctly were you know import data bring in data from the database do that deduplication figure out the community cases versus the border cases tell folks if there's cases that they should be you know cases of concern to be looking into to, uh, make a, a summary to send off to high level folks at 9 a.m do another s deeper summary that went off at 11 a.m um that was done with our markdown uh knitted to word and then a media summary um both in our markdown to word as well as um HTML given to the web team to put online. Are those all the steps? Is there anything that we've that's, missed? That's based, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, that those are all the steps. Um it didn't always look exactly like that, but yeah. Sure. Um but and then and I guess the other thing is that that that, that border and case of concern decision making sort of steps were involved accessing a whole other set of databases. So it was kind of the case database and then we'd be joining that onto the travel database and the testing database and the managed isolation databases and that sort of thing. So kind of each each of those decisions is is a join and then kind of a gotcha. Hey, David here. Uh, just wondering if you've checked out the R for the Rest of Us courses page. We've got a whole bunch of courses that you might be interested in. If you've never used R, we've got a free getting started with R course followed by Fundamentals of R and Going Deeper with R. Those courses will give you the foundations that you need in order to use R. If you already use R or you want to go deeper on a particular topic, check out our other courses. We've got courses on making tables, making maps, high quality data viz, using Git, GitHub with R, data cleaning, and lots more. Check it out at rfortherestofus.com slash courses. Yeah. And how, I guess I, I should have asked this before, but how, how big was the team that was working on this? Um, it varied a bit over time, but probably averaged about five or six people. Okay. Um, I mean, it's kind of amazing actually, when you think about, you know, a relatively small team like that, being able to, um, automate all of this so that you can, you know, do produce this much output every day. Um, and I, I also actually liked what you were saying about how R, you know, despite the fact that there was some turnover, R kind of kept things going by having everything in a code-based um, environment so people could, you know, just pick up other people's code and run it as opposed to, you know, if Larry, who does all the analysis in Excel, leaves, then, you know, you're, you're kind of screwed at that point because you don't have <laughs> it written down as to what he does. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the kind of most overlooked, like, like that there's obviously an, an like setting up, <laughs> setting up Larry's analysis in Excel is usually faster than writing it up in code, but right. that, and, and, and it often feels like it's harder to onboard people into an R environment, but right. actually if you've got to just sit down, run this, look for error messages, almost anyone can do that. You know, right. and then and so we had right. some people come in with essentially no R experience at all. Oh, really? And they'd be yeah, yeah, and they'd be dropped into sort of a week of shadowing someone doing it, uh, and then wow, um, then they could, you know, and, and obviously they, they they were there for their 
you know, we had, they came in because they understood data. And so they right. were there for that sense checking. Um, not, not for, the, they weren't there for their R skills because they didn't have them, sure. but they were learning them fast. Uh, and, and obviously if something went wrong, then they had to get, go and talk to someone who knew what was going on, but we could, it at least meant that, you know, relatively junior people could pick up the reporting workflow as long as someone who knew what was around was around solve problems when they happened. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I didn't realize that people were coming in and working on this so quickly after, after starting uh, working with R. That's interesting. Um, what about, you, you talked about, you know, at some point you moved to GitLab um, and collaborating that way. How were you collaborating on code prior to that? <laughs> the worst way. Um, so it, it was a <laughs> Right. I mean, so initially, um, the code was just sitting on, it was sitting on a shared drive, which everyone okay, had access that's to. Uh, and it was a, um, collaboration was a, are you in that file? <laughs> right. Um, right. okay. I won't go in that file type of thing. So, so, I mean, I mean, there, and there's ways to set up your, your workflow to mitigate that where lo lots of small files. Right. right. Um, but, but that's, I mean, that's amazing to me that you know, you both had people who were relatively new or, or totally new to R who were onboarded relatively quickly. You weren't using, you know, version control. Um, and, you know, at the same time you were dealing with this huge, you know, world changing event, you were able to bring people onto R, change your team's workflow um, and, and make it all work. Um, do you have any tips or thoughts as to, to what made that possible? Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, everyone was highly motivated. I've never worked in a team that worked so well. <laughs> um, and I think that was, you know, I, and I think that sort of the sense of urgency that something like responding to COVID gives you just right. makes people more willing to, to just be uncomfortable. You know, like it was tough, you know, uh, and actually right. they, the onboarding people into Git was much harder in the end than onboarding people into an R reporting workflow. Um, but that everyone we had relatively quickly picked up the value of having kind of an R-based um, reporting pipeline. I think that yeah. sort of spoke for itself. But the abstractions needed to sort of get into version control were a lot harder for people to pick up uh, if they were coming from that sort of software background. And I guess, so we didn't initially have Git because like all of this is also going on within a background. Um, a lot of fantastic work was done before I got there basically to push the ministry to be quite innovative in this space. Um, you know, the health laptops are just, the whole computing system is phenomenally locked down. Uh, mm. You know, it's uh, like coming from a sort of a journalism background where it's pretty open and um, you can just install whatever open source tool you want. Um, right. The health data has, a, you know, cons sure. there's a lot of restrictions on what you can do. And we were working with phenomenal amounts of, of kind of identifiable information about people. And so, you know, you can, you've got to be a lot more locked down yeah. and, 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 um, New Zealand, one of New Zealand's big hospitals had just been shut down by a cyber attack. Um, oh, wow. 
and had to kind of completely rebuild their systems. So there, there's a lot of reasons to be very, very careful. Uh, and so just walking in and saying, I need this open source tool. <laughs> People are like, nah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so the initial reason there was no version control was it wasn't an option. Um, I see. But we, um, but there was a software development team that had started using GitLab and we were able to kind of, um, once it had been approved for them, we were able to make right. the argument that I was really valuable for data analysis. That's interesting. As well. Um, and, yeah. but also that took like, that was quite a, the, the more software focused people were like, why, why, why the analysts need version control? So it took quite a bit of, you know, um, took quite a bit of convincing to, to introduce the sort of get based reproducible ideas. Sure. Um, and then the other thing that, that, um, worked for us was that the ministry had set up a, um, a big hosted internal RStudio server instance. So everyone was ultimately everyone was running on their own uh, on, on, on this big, uh, so, and, and by the time I left, I think we were close to 300 uh, users wow. within the ministry. So yeah, so the ministry of health wow. has become a, um, a, a massive user of, uh, and so kind of what, and that was all, that's all. So within the COVID response, we were probably, there was our team, there were probably 20 or 30 analysts working in R. And then the, um, then, then R was also used heavily by the team that was managing the vaccine rollout and all the vaccine rollout mm. recording as well. Uh, and then there was a whole bunch of other. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's definitely become the tool of choice for um, for analysts right? for 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 kind of health yeah. analysts in New Zealand. Why has it? Why do you think it's become so um, popular among folks at the Ministry of Health? Um, I think, <laughs> I mean, because well, I guess one the 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 lack of a license, significant licensing fee, means that you know you're not. Um, the costs of some of the Oracle systems and, and that were being used before and other things like that were prohibitive to right. expanding people's teams. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think it, that you can kind of just drop anyone in. Uh, and, and also I think just the very easy, relatively easy way people can pick up and start doing simple tasks. Uh, and, it, and, and then, um, and I guess just a increasing uh, recognition of the need for sort of reproducible pipelines, um, and and that yeah. sort of thing. And I guess R is is becoming, you know, it's it's I guess it's it, it's become much more popular in New Zealand, um, small, right. which is ironic. Like it, you know, because it originated <laughs> here, but um, but but sort of didn't have a big, you know, was was very statsy. Was was yeah. a t I guess it was popular in in in, in you know academic statistics sure. environments, sure. but hadn't didn't sort of propagate out into the yeah. rest of you know yeah, the rest of sense. analytics. But now that now there's some pretty big inroads, right? And and so yes, yeah, so and, and I mean just the fact that that you can you can get three hundred people <laughs> who are going to right. sign up, um, right? You know, there's there's there are now a good pool of people that. Um, yeah, those skills, or, or and now they're or or your or your people are like, 
you know, I've been doing this type of analytics for a while, but I want to learn R. So, you, you know, people are wanting to add it. Like people are mm. seeing it as a skill that, that increases their employability. And so people are, are willing to learn it. Whereas, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe not that long ago, you'd be like, well, I need you to learn R. And people would be like, right, what? right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, okay. so, so the, the person who set up their original pipeline, um, prior to my joining, he came from a similar view of things to me. Uh, and so I think having the key thing is just having this clear vision that we want to have a, an R-based pipeline that's almost entirely reproducible and we're just right. going to make it work. And yeah. I think that that, apart from the fact that the benefits that we've talked about, I think that, that, that it's a relatively simple mental model. And so, um, so it's something that kind of everyone can be, can be working towards and, and, but also something that people can be picking off small pieces of. So it's not like, I think if you have a kind of a classic BI pipeline, it requires database, you know, um, DB admins and, and, and all kinds of like specialist skills to get it to work. And it also is quite monolithic. Whereas we actually had something that I nicknamed the spreadsheet of doom. And it was just, it was, a, I've, I mean, so I, I'm a very poor user of spreadsheets. I, you know, for a long time, I only ever had a read-only version of, of, Word, of Excel. Um, and I would use it to open and open things up and have a look at it yeah. so that I could see what the columns were to load into. Uh, but obviously yeah. there's lots of people out there that are quite, um, much more capable than me of using spreadsheets. And so we, we had a, this spreadsheet that basically served as the error checking, um, mm. for, for the part. So we, we'd put in some, we'd get in a few kind of numbers from, from a different source and they'd go into the spreadsheet and then the pipeline would run. And if the spreadsheet and the pipeline matched, we're good to go. Um, gotcha. and if they didn't, then we were not, <laughs> we were not good to go. Uh, yeah. and so, um, but it got, it got very complicated. Um, but one of my key triumphs was to eliminate that spreadsheet mm. and build the error, error checking in, in another With place. NR. But also I think that's the flexibility that, that that's what was great about this kind of pipeline is, is that we could actually be like, this is what we're working towards, but we can't do this bit. We can't automate this bit now. So let's just do it in a spreadsheet. And then we had a mm. couple of people set that up. And so I think that the, that approach was really empowering for people. So yeah. that, um, we weren't, you know, we didn't have analysts sitting around waiting for, for people to finish setting up things in databases, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. People could actually just get in and do stuff and it would be, um, you could see the impact of it. You know, people would start work on Monday and by right. sort of Wednesday, they'd, they'd see their, the work that the work they did in the media, you know, like it's quite a, right, right. It's, it, it's, a, it's a pace that you don't normally get. Um, you know, under a normal analytics type of situation, you'll arrive and do something for quite a few years and then it might show up right. somewhere, right, right, right. you know, I'm evangelizing this R pipeline <laughs> pretty heavily, but I do think that it, it, um, yeah, it, as I reflect on it, as well as kind of providing kind of those technical advantages, I think it did actually help as, as a way of assembling the team and, and people huh. can, you know. Like, like I think that it's an abstraction that that people can kind of work with and be empowered by, 
Um, and then also, because then, then you can be like, okay, you're new, but here's a little bit we need to tidy up, go and understand how that works, tidy it up, do this one piece. Um, and yeah, and then, then, then that person becomes the expert on that one piece. Interesting. So you're saying it's like a actually facilitated collaboration in ways that might not have been possible with another tool. Am I understanding? I, you I think so. Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, because yeah, it helps ensure that you're not too siloed. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, and so, yeah, um, that's interesting. I haven't thought about R in that way, but that that absolutely makes sense. So. Um, well, let me ask you one last question because uh, I see we're. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, if you were advising the government of New Zealand or, or indeed any government, I'm curious if you would have any thoughts for them with regard to R that might be things they should be thinking about to help prepare for the next COVID. Yeah, actually, I, I was think I was actually thinking about this yesterday. Ironically. It was good luck that we were able to stand up that R Studio server environment. Other people had been pushing for that, and it kind of aligned with the COVID response. Uh, as, but I think that it's almost like something like someone like the government needs a bunch of those systems ready to go, hmm. uh, and and actually needs a central strategy for. So so like I think what what we did was great, but it would almost be like I think that if we could have a a um, a government-wide strategy around response for analytics. Like, this is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to work. These are the resources in place. Um, obviously, that's it's much harder <laughs> to yeah. do something like that at sort of an all-of-government level. Um, but I think at a lower level, it's recognizing that a crisis like COVID, you don't know what you're going to need to do. Essentially, the way to plan for it is to set up systems that are flexible. You know, you, you, you could build a fancy software system and, and a dashboard and all sorts of things and, and be ready to go, but it wouldn't be right. Sure. So, so basically invest, having the investment in the people and the tools in place so that, um, and then I guess the thing where I think that where we, our biggest, the biggest weakness of our response was, was, the way that we publish data. Um, so a- another thing I think that would help for this sort of thing was having in place a much better open data kind of culture and platform and structure so that then if, if that had been in place, then we could have basically plugged into that uh, and and done it. So the way that we published, it wasn't ideal. Um, it was very web, web table based and, and, and wasn't, very friendly to machine reading and that sort of thing. Um, so mm. um, there, there, there's a lot that could be done to improve that. Um, but trying to make those improvements while responding to a crisis is tricky. Yes, I can imagine <laughs> that being the case. Um, great. Well, Chris, um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. This has been really interesting to learn about the role that R played in New Zealand's COVID response. So yeah, again, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening. I hope you found this conversation interesting. Uh, If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. David at rfortherestofus.com. Thanks.